Peter three thirteen through 22. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. May God bless to us the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you, Greg. Take your Bibles and uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> I don't know if this was this past week. It must have been recently because uh, uh, I saw it and I just laughed so hard. Great moments, great moments in uh, mishandling God's word, okay? Somebody, an elected official, I don't know where this person was from, what context, but uh, this person was talking about election integrity out in public. Uh, and did you catch this? And they quoted the verse that we are to make our election and calling secure. <laughs> do not interpret the Bible that way, please. If you do, I've got other churches I would recommend that you go to. But please don't come to this one. I'm just teasing. No, this is the place where we come and we, we it's, it's pretty simple, folks. We study, we read God's word, we study it, and we try to apply it into our lives. That's it. Because God is the source of love and truth. Amen? Amen. And in this world, uh, somebody mentioned it earlier, we are continue, we're getting more and more confused out there in the culture about what's right and wrong, what's up and down. And where, this is the place that we can come to. We can come here and we can hear from God. So... Uh, we'll get into the text here in a minute. But let, first, uh, last night my wife and I rewatched uh, The Karate Kid. I know it was, it, I, I got all kinds of flashbacks from my childhood to watch that movie. Now, we did not watch this one with Jackie Chan. I don't know on what planet that's considered a real movie, but um, not even close to the original 1984 epic, uh, The Karate Kid. In fact, let's crane kick that out of here right now. <laughs> Yes, and let's focus on the real Karate Kid, which is, you know, 1984. In this movie, uh, the main character, Daniel LaRusso, moves from New Jersey to L.A. with his mom. Dad's not in the picture. The, the, the movie doesn't explain why. The story doesn't explain why. Anyway, they move from New Jersey 
to LA because mom's got a job lined up there and I guess the job market in New Jersey is not that great. Plus, I think they have some family, whatever. So they move there and Daniel is now faced with a whole bunch of fears. LA and New Jersey culture are not the same. I don't know if you know that. They're very different. I've been to both. It's shocking, okay? Uh, So he doesn't understand the culture out there. Uh, He gets to know this young lady, and uh, he quickly realizes that she, just a few weeks before, has broken up with the biggest jerk that's ever lived, who happens to be the two-time karate champion of the area. Her former boyfriend is the biggest jerk in the world, and he's the two-time karate champion of, of their area. And so, uh, because he has taken a liking to this girl and and she's taking a liking to him, uh, now this this boy who's the karate champion, he doesn't like that. He wants her back. And so they have all these, uh, he beats him up, you know, he beats up Daniel LaRusso a couple of times. And um, and he, out of fear, out of fear, Daniel LaRusso has to tell his mother that he had a bicycle accident. He doesn't want to doesn't want to face the reality that he's getting beat up. He, he has to tell his girlfriend a, a different story. And he has to try to avoid the bad guy, Johnny, and his friends whenever he can at school because every time he sees Johnny, he's likely to get whipped up on again. And so he's got, he's got a lot of fear, and it motivates him to do all kinds of crazy things to avoid these social interactions, to hide the reality from his mother, to hide the reality from this girl, And you know the rest of the story. He meets the handyman of his apartment complex who happens to be a Japanese fellow named Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi, who knows karate, who's never taught anybody karate, and then goes on to teach Daniel LaRusso karate. But in re-watching it, I realized that this story is not primarily a story about fighting, about learning karate so you can whoop up on the guy who's whooping up on you. If you go back and watch it again, what you're going to find, and I understand this is some Eastern mysticism, but I think it's, 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 uh, it pertains to what I think Peter is talking about. Not that they're the same, they're not, but, uh, but what, what Mr. Miyagi is teaching Daniel is, is that what he's teaching him is that in learning to fight and learning karate, he's really learning how not to fight, right? He's learning that what he's going to do is he's going to earn respect from the people around him, uh, especially these boys that are beating up on him. And, and once he has earned that, he's not going to have to fight them anymore. It's an interesting, it's an interesting story. And you know the rest of the story. He, he, uh, he goes to the end tournament and he, and he wins. He wins the whole thing. But the winning of the karate fight is not as important as earning the respect from his, which, which at the end of the movie they do give him. Johnny and all his gang pay him the respect uh, of, of congratulating him on his victory and seeing him now as one of their peers. What does this have to do with First Peter? Well, we're talking about suffering. And we're talking about going through difficult times, whether that be physical suffering through an illness or physical suffering through the threat of violence or just social, some sort of sh- social suffering because a group of people have looked at us as Christians and have said, you guys are no longer worthy to be part of the conversation in our culture because of some reason. We just we think that you believe in a in a bearded man in the sky who this is the stereotype, right? You believe in a bearded man in the sky, and if you're gonna hold that belief, then we can't trust you anymore. And and 
And so we're going to marginalize you. Whatever the suffering that we go through, if we're not careful, folks, we can operate our lives in fear. We can fear what others think of us out in the culture so much that we will maybe change the way we behave. We'll, we'll, we'll not bring God up in the conversation. We'll not bring Jesus up. We'll not talk about the resurrection, the crucifixion. We'll, we'll simply put those things on the shelf and try to relate to folks on a strictly secular basis. And that's not why we're here. And so today, I think in this text, Peter is going to talk about how we can get the strength that we need to suffer well. In fact, that's the big question for today. How do we access the strength that we need to suffer well in this life? How do we access that? How do we overcome fear? Now, this is a long text, and I'm going to go through it pretty quickly, but I commend it to your study. And then when, when we get to the last part of the text, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. This, the last part of our text this morning, the fourth point, is probably the hardest passage in Peter, in 1 Peter, to interpret. And so I'm just coming to you telling you, I don't have it all figured out yet. You may, not, you may disagree with my interpretation, um, uh, but I'm going to do the best I can to give you, I think I'm pretty confident with the big picture of the fourth point, but uh, the details of it are strange. The first thing that we see in the text is this, in Christ you cannot be destroyed. In Christ you cannot be destroyed. Look at what it says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The Bible, it turns out, is filled with sayings, filled with scriptures that remind us that if we are God's people, we are secure in him. Now, that, what I'm talking about is ultimate security, not temporal security. Let me, let me clarify. Certainly, we see what's going on in Afghanistan, and we know that our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are from a different culture, who speak a different language, are being put to death over there now simply because they claim the name of Jesus Christ. And so I'm, we're not talking about their physical life being preserved. We are all going to die. Uh, doctors tell me that one out of every one person in this room is gonna perish eventually. It's just statistically true. Don't know anybody who's lived longer than that. In our bodies. But what we are going to do is we are going to live on in the non-physical part of who we are. We're gonna live on and then, you know, the Bible tells us that believers will be reunited with a, with an, a glorified body later on. That's, that's a different day. The point is, is that when, if we do die, that doesn't separate us from God. We are still completely in him, and he is going to guard us. And there's all kinds of passages of Scripture that remind us of this. <clears throat> Romans 8.31, for example, says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Just a few verses later in Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul writes this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's other passages, lots of them. You can just, you can go Google, you know, what, what does the Bible say about God's protection of his people? Psalm 91, Isaiah 54, 2 Thessalonians 3, Proverbs 18. I mean, literally there's dozens of passages in the Bible where God is reminding us of, of a doctrine that I'll call the doctrine of God's protection of his people. In, if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of God through Jesus Christ, you cannot be destroyed. 
He has you in the palm of his hand. He will never let you go. Does that give you any confidence? Does that drive out any modicum of fear? It does for me. It's important that we recall that to our minds because, because as we go about our lives in the hustle and bustle of the daily grind, if we're not careful, if we don't spend meaningful time with God reminding ourselves of these things, we will forget and we will again back into fear, fearful living. Now, there's a qualifier on this, right? It says, now who is there to harm you if, there's an if, if you are zealous for what is good? And in this context, I believe what Peter is saying, reminding us is that what's good here is, is what is good as God defines it in his word. That's what good means. And what zealous means is that somebody who's committed to that, to that, to, to God's good, who is an adherent to it, who is loyal to doing what God says is good. In other words, what Peter's saying is, if you are, if you have dedicated your life, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your savior from sin, you have dedicated yourself to what is good. And if that's the case, who is there that can harm you? And the applied answer is nobody, nothing. No circumstances, no, no amount of suffering can harm you. It's an encouraging thought. The second thing we see in this text is that in Christ, there is true joy. Look at verse 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And again, there's a qualifier there, right? The qualifier, just like in verse 13, where it says, if you're zealous for doing what is good, verse 14 says, if you suffer for righteousness sake. I, I am observing uh, that in our Christian culture, subculture, I guess you would call it, because you've got the world culture, U.S. culture, Christian subculture here in the United States, we're having a difficult time, I think, especially in the COVID pandemic, of picking the right hills to die on. Amen? We are. And it's hard. I get it, because I, <laughs> I sit at my desk sometimes, and I just kind of beat my head against the Bible going, what am I supposed to do in this circumstance? What's the right way to go in this circumstance, Lord? And, um, you know, he's good, and, and his word is chock full of stuff, so uh, eventually I could figure it out. <clears throat> but we need to be wise and make sure that if we're going to suffer, we're, we're not a glutton for punishment. We don't go out there and suffer just to suffer so that we can go to the press or, or post on social media, oh, look, I'm suffering as a Christian. We need to be suffering for righteousness' sake. Now, when I say there's true joy, I'm talking like Galatians 5, 19 through 23, where Paul lays out what, are, what is the fruit of the works of the flesh, and he gives a whole long list there, but then he turns and says, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then the second thing he lists in there is joy. And then peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, uh, sorry, I think I said gentleness twice, self-control, against such things there is no law. And again, I think what Peter is talking about is ultimate joy, not necessarily temporal joy, although I do think that it does feel good when we do the right thing, even if it's unpopular or dangerous, when we do the right thing as God has described it. But I think what Peter's talking about is that if we are suffering, and even if we must suffer painfully, even unto death, 
that what we will find on the other end of that, once we enter into God's presence, is blessing, joy. So often I think that we as Christians in this life, we are satisfied with the easy way out of tough situations. The biggest, the biggest one that I see is that there's a relationship that's not going well and we just say what we need to say to get out of it. Say what we need to say to be done with the interaction instead of getting at what's really going on in each other's hearts that's causing the conflict. And so I wanna exhort you today, do not compromise in doing what needs to be done for short-term happiness. Instead, seek joy by being on the same page with the person that you're in conflict with or standing up for what is right, even if it means suffering just a bit. Cain had to deal with this back in Genesis chapter four, right? Cain, uh, Cain was suffering because he made an offering to the Lord and the offering was no good. The, the Lord did not regard his offering. He, he regarded Abel, his brother's offering. Abel gave his first and his best. That's what we think. And so Cain, was, his face was downcast and he, he was miserable about it. And so God asked him, he said, uh, hey, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? That word accepted in Hebrew literally means have your face lifted up. If you do well, will your face not be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Brothers and sisters, just because we're followers of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we don't have to pursue living righteously. And in doing so, we will be pursuing, I believe, true joy and blessing, even if along the way that means suffering. So we can pack this up right now. It's hot in here. You know, it, we've learned enough today. Uh, in Christ, you cannot be destroyed. Boy, that gives you a lot of confidence. And in Christ, even if it's hard, there's true joy. Okay, let's go home. <laughs> Sorry, I got a few more points. Plus, don't you want to get to that whole point where Christ is talking to the prisoners and or the spirits in prison? Don't you want to get to that? Aren't you wondering what I'm going to say? Me too. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just teasing. Okay, third point. In Christ, you can operate fearlessly. Look at verses 14 to 16. In Christ, you can operate fearlessly. But even if you should suffer, it says, for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor the Christ, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. By the way, if you want to know my opinion, this is my opinion, that line, that phrase, most important phrase in this text, in this passage today, most important. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I would like underline that in your Bible, highlight it, do whatever you have to do in your app. And I'd go study on that if I was you. There's a lot there. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let's talk about what this means for a minute. It talks about uh, do not be fear, do not fear, do not be troubled by them, the people that are causing your suffering. Why? 
Or how, how do you do that? You do that by making Christ the focus of your life. Making Christ the focus of your life. Now again, I wanna focus on that line that says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Other English translations say it differently. Some say sanctify Christ in your hearts. It's kind of the same idea in different English words. In our Western culture, when we think of the word heart, we typically, when, let me use it in a phrase. If, if somebody were to say to you, trust your heart, listen to your heart, follow your heart. We typically are thinking about, we, we typically are having in our minds our feelings, our emotions, right? That's in our Western culture. But I want to invite you to think that in, in Peter's culture, it was different. In Peter's culture, the heart was the seat of the mind, you know, how you think, your knowledge, the will, how you set goals and make decisions, your volition, and your emotion, how you feel about what's going on. It was all encompassing of these things, your thoughts, your feelings, your, 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 your thoughts, your will, your emotion. That's what Peter's talking about. So when he's talking about, you know, uh, when he's talking about that we are to honor in your hearts, that's, that's like the totality of who you are, honor Christ the Lord as holy, as set apart, as something altogether different. What does that look like? I'm gonna take my best stab to uh, illustrate this visually. In our hearts, this is where we think, this is where we establish goals, we build convictions, we make decisions, and we feel things about life. In our hearts, there are many things to consider on a daily basis. I just put up a few of them uh, for you to consider. So in our hearts, we might consider things about our work, our children, our spouses, ourselves, our entertainment options, and a whole list of other things that I didn't put up here just to simplify the graphic, Okay. This is not an exhaustive tool. And so this is just my observation. As we go about life, we may prioritize some of these things over other things, either explicitly by saying, this is, this is my priority one, priority two, or implicitly by just how we spend our time and our resources. And it turns out that um, we, have a, we as a culture have put a label on uh, what happens when someone elevates something too high in their lives? For example, what's a workaholic? A workaholic elevates what too much? Their job, right? Their job. They, they elevate their work, uh, perhaps even above their, their spouse, their children, and maybe even sometimes God. They prioritize their work over everything else. And so they, we call that person a workaholic. What about lazy? What are they prioritizing? What's a lazy person prioritizing too, too highly? Their self or their entertainment, right? Their self or their entertainment, good. Um, what about, what would you say about somebody who's living vicariously through their children? Who are they elevating too high? Their kids, their kids, right? It's easy. Uh, now, uh, this last one, I got help from the first service because I couldn't come up with a word, but... Um, Actually, the first one I came up with the word, the second one I couldn't. A husband who elevates his spouse, his wife, too much, maybe even above God. What would you call a husband that elevates their spouse, their wife, too, too much above everything else, even maybe above God? Well, 
Uh, here's some words I came up with. Henpecked. <laughs> under the thumb of their wife. Hey, uh, dear, it's time to go to church. I don't want to go to church today, honey. I just don't want to go to church. Okay, dear, well, if that's what you want, we'll just I'll stay home. No. Or uh, cowed is a better, uh, maybe, maybe is a term that's used. But I couldn't come up with a word for what a, a wife who elevates their husband uh, way, way up there, maybe even above God. But somebody came to me after the first service and said doormat. I don't know if that's the right word. Anyway, um, it's funny that we come up with words for this. So again, in our hearts, we can become out of balance. So what does it mean then to in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy? Well, here's what I think it means. And if, you've, if you find this diagram helpful, it'll be on the church Facebook page today uh, at noon. You can pull it off and, and look at it. It means that as we exercise our hearts to, to think and to make decisions and set goals, as we use our hearts to feel things about this life, that we are basically putting, we are doing these things with the understanding that Jesus Christ is my Lord, and I'm going to let him inform the rest of me or the rest of my heart how to operate with my spouse, with my children, with myself, with my entertainment options, with my work. I'm going to let him set my priorities. And it looks weird. It looks culturally strange. Let me give you an example. I have a cousin who was a, a, a Purdue engineer just like me, and he... Um, he was in a company, a Fortune 500 company, and he was zooming up the corporate ladder. Man, he was going fast, zooming right up. He happened to be a Christian. He happened to have a wife and several kids. And he looked around, he looked around and observed what was going on. And what was going on was at each rung that he would climb up the ladder, they would take more of his time. They'd give him more money. But, the, but he could see where this, this ladder was headed. This ladder that he was climbing was headed to a place where from the moment that he woke up in the morning till the moment that he laid his head on the pillow, the company wants their time. And they'll pay you handsomely for it. And so he did something that was very culturally odd for people in that company. He stopped climbing the ladder and he, I think he even backed up a couple of rungs and camped out there at a place where he was convicted that God was telling him that he could sufficiently nurture his spouse, nurture his children, take care of his responsibilities at church and in the home and care for himself spiritually and do all these things and still be able to put food on the table for his family. That's what, in my mind, it looks like to, in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, at least in this man's life, in his job. Now, we have to, I'm going to say something, and I, and I, I don't say this with a lot of uh, happiness that I have to say it, but I, I just want us to all put it on our radar so that we see it when it comes at us again, because it will, which is this. Christians in the United States of America, especially, I think we are very susceptible to movements, Movements, they move through the church and then everybody's like, ooh, look, there's a, there's a movement. Let's, everybody, a lot of Christians are finding this to be helpful. Let's get on board with that movement. And the problem is, is that if the, 
if we get our eyes off of Christ and we put our eyes on the movement, then sometimes the movement swings too far. And sometimes it can swing so far that it can turn into idolatry. Let me give you some examples. You're not going to like them. I'm going to throw myself under the bus first. The purity movement. Purity culture movement. I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Remember that book? Joshua Harris. The guy who has renounced his faith, divorced his wife. and Yeah, that guy that I taught his book in my youth group when I was a youth pastor. There's some good things in that book. There's some wise things in that book. Purity culture itself, purity is not a bad thing. I endorse it wholeheartedly. I think that young men and women should save themselves and not engage in, in any sexual activity until they're married. It's a beautiful thing. And there are many benefits to doing that. And there are many consequences to not doing that. But when we, but but that the the purity culture movement kind of had a tendency to elevate that one sin all the way up to the greatest of all sins, and it's not. It's not. If if a young person engages in that sin, there is grace at the throne of Christ. There's forgiveness. There's consequences. There always is with sin. So the purity culture movement, it, it went a bit too far, if you ask my opinion. Were there good things about it? Yes. Were there, are there accurate things about it? Yes. The megachurch movement, the megachurch movement, uh, the megachurch movement built church around the idea that we can cater to what people want and we can leave out all the bits that they don't want. And they went too far. And what we, what we did is we, the megachurch movement grew a generation of Christians who are a mile wide in their theology and about a half an inch deep. Because I believe that the, one of the facets that they truly missed out on is, is good Christian fellowship. And then there's the whole education thing. You know, the homeschool movement, the Christian school movement, the public school, you know, which is the best to educate your kid, uh, Every one of those three options have pros and cons, right? The homeschool movement, the Christian school movement. We have a Christian school. Here I'm, you know, just, we just got to be careful that we don't allow these movements to, to get into our minds and say, this is the only right way, because it's not. There's different challenges in each one of those three scenarios. I legitimately know people who, you know, to go to conferences and, and uh, took up the, the cause of homeschooling their children, and they should never have homeschooled their kids. Uh, they, just, they just didn't put in the time to do it well. And so we just need to be careful about these movements. Now, I'm going to say something, and I'm going to make you even mad, uh, more angry at me, and just see me after the sermon, and I'll take it. Here's what typically happens, and there's many other movements. I mean, Promise Keepers was a movement. There's, there's all kinds of movements out there, okay? And a lot of them had a lot of good things about them, okay? I'm not saying they didn't. They were wonderful. There was wonderful elements to these movements, but sometimes they could go too far. And here's what we'll say when we as Christians are, are in the process of getting on with one of these movements. God must be in it because it's popular. Look at all the people that are benefiting from this movement. God must clearly be in it. That's not this diagram. 
This diagram says Christ is the Lord in your heart, and, in, and you're going to look to what his word says to find what is the truth. You're going to look to what his word says to find the proper priority between all these different things. We got to be careful about movements. When I was a young man, I used to go whitewater kayaking uh, a lot. And uh, believe me, there's no whitewater around Purdue. So we had to drive a long way, like six or eight hours to North Carolina or, or West Virginia or somewhere like that to go kayaking. And one of the things that I found out really quickly is that the water moves really fast. Not like the ditches in Indiana that's creeping along at a snail's pace. It's like driving a sports car down the river, you know? And so you're, dry, you're going down the river and you're supposed to, to, to go to the shore at a certain spot to get out. And if you blow past that by even 20 meters, 20 yards, then to turn around and paddle back upstream is incredibly difficult and exhausting. And so we just gotta be aware that these movements, they can sweep us into areas that we don't necessarily wanna go. All right, that, I think that's the major thing. That, that the whole idea of in your hearts, honor Christ Jesus, the Lord, or Christ the Lord is holy. That's a big concept. That's the big takeaway for today. But then there's other aspects to it, that we are to let it come out in your speech. What does Peter say? Uh, but in your hearts, honor, the, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay, so here's what that means. As you're, as you're working through, as you're looking into God's word and trying to figure out what does the Lord say about my job? What does the Lord say about my spouse? And as you figure that out and begin to implement that into your own life, and as people come to you and say, hey, you've stopped climbing the corporate ladder and you're camping out down here, why are you doing that? Witnessing opportunity. Because I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I've looked into his word, and he's told me that I have to find this balance between, I have to put, I have to work so that I can earn and, and put food on the table for my family, but I can't let my work overwhelm my spouse, my children, my responsibilities to myself and to my church, and that's why I'm doing it. See what I'm saying? As you figure it out, and as you begin to practice these things yourself, be ready to share why you're doing what you're doing. And let Christ come out in your attitude. Uh, it says that we are to do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. You know, when, when we as Christians figure things out, it's not difficult for us to get become prideful. Look at me. I'm following the Lord. You know, no. You want to, you want, you want, uh, that Christ-like attitude that drew you to himself to come out in your speech to someone else. And then uh, finally, and, and again, this all takes effort, right? Let your Christ-like manner put your enemies to shame. Let your Christ-like attitude put your enemies to shame. It says, having a good conscience, verse 16, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good than if, uh, if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. You get the idea, right? You, you, wanna, you wanna conduct yourself in such a way that when somebody makes an accusation against you, that the people in the room are gonna go, that's not true. That's not this person. This man, this woman, they are followers of Jesus Christ. I see it in their lives every day. Uh, whoever's making this accusation should be ashamed of themselves. Okay. 
the point of this is, is that in making Christ the focus of your life, you will learn to operate fearlessly. Because deep down in the core of who you are, deep down in your soul, when, when the culture is going this direction and, and everybody's going this direction and you are standing firm on what the word of God says, you know, if, if you know, if you have confidence that you're in God's will, you can, that will have an impact on uh, your fear level. I'm convinced that, that I and many other Christians, I'm gonna throw myself under the bus, we operate oftentimes out of fear of man. In other words, we think more highly of what other people think about us than what God thinks about us. It's something that each one of us as Christians need to overcome. All right, final point. You've waited long enough for it. Here it is. Your choice is clear and obvious. Look at verses 17 through 22. In other words, if you're gonna choose between following the way of sin and following the way of Christ, what Peter is about to say here is that the choice could not be more clear. It's a no-brainer. You don't have to be smart to figure this out. It's easy. So what does he say? It says, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here's the reason. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Baptism itself, the act of baptism doesn't save anybody, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Okay. The big picture here, I'm pretty confident with the big picture, and then we'll drill down into some details. The big picture here is this. Jesus suffered for good. And yes, he suffered mightily, even unto death. But then once that was done, God exalted him up into heaven. He resurrected him, first of all, and then took him to heaven. And he is now at the right, at the very right hand of God, the position of supreme authority. He's at the right hand of God with the angels, the authorities, and the powers having been, subject, having been subjected to him. That's what Jesus did. Okay? That's what Jesus did. That is contrasted in this passage with these so-called spirits in prison who Jesus apparently paid a visit to. He went and proclaimed to these spirits in prison because they did not obey. And you know the Bible tells us that their doom is eternal separation from God. In other words, while they were operating on the earth, they did what they wanted. They did what they wanted, and their consequence for that was eternal separation from God. So let me just say a few things before I wrap this up. First of all, I'm gonna say, I wanna say this, and I wanna say don't, you can take me a certain way on this, and I'm fearful that you're gonna take it, so I'm gonna say, say it as clearly as I can. The reality of life 
is that we live in a sin-cursed world, and as long as that's true, suffering will be a part of our lives. It will be. Now, don't hear me be a fatalist. In other words, I think that part of our jobs as Christians is that, and the Bible says this in the one another passages, that when we see a brother or sister who's suffering, we are to do what we can to alleviate that. That just may be spending time with them. That may be if they're suffering because they're hungry to feed them or clothe them, whatever. I'm not saying that, oh, well, uh, life is suffering, and so just deal with it. I'm saying that the reality of this life, even amongst the people of God, even amongst the church is, even as we're attempting to minister to one another and to alleviate the suffering that we can, suffering will still be a part of this life. That's what I'm saying. I think that's what this text is saying. And so you can suffer for doing good or you can suffer for doing evil. Those are your two options. Now let's talk about these, uh, these spirits that were in prison real quick. Uh, I'm gonna say this as quickly as I can. Does everybody know, uh, you're all familiar with uh, superhero movies? Marvel, DC comic, Spider-Man, Batman, I don't know, Iron Man, you're familiar with these, right? And are, are you familiar with the fact that, that sometimes somebody will write a comic book about a superhero, and in that comic book, there will be a minor little character that's, not, that's just a minor little character in that comic book, but then years later, somebody will come along and they'll take that minor character and they'll write a whole backstory about that character and make a whole series out of it. You get this, right? Okay, so there are some Bible scholars who... Look at this episode in 1 Peter 3 about Jesus going to visit these, uh, these spirits who were in prison as a reference to something called the book of Enoch. Enoch was a very minor character. He appeared in one verse in Genesis. <laughs> it says that he, uh, he walked with the Lord and then one day he, he lived to a certain age and, and then one day he was no more. Like he, he got taken up to heaven somehow. Okay, Enoch. Somebody wrote a book, it's extra biblical, it's not part of the scripture, it's called the book of Enoch that writes the whole backstory of this character. And in that story, in one episode, he goes down somehow to this prison in the underworld where all these spirits are locked up, these disobedient spirit beings, angels probably, are locked up and he preaches to them. And so, it is thought that Peter is making, in Peter's day, this book would have been a very popular read. It would have, people would have known it. They may, may not have read it themselves, but they knew the story well enough. It's like Spider-Man. You don't have to ever have seen a Spider-Man movie or read a Spider-Man comic book to know that some dude got bit by a spider and now he can sling webs, right? Climb buildings. You just know it because it's part of our culture, right? Well, the book of Enoch was part of the culture. And so Th- the, one, one thinking is that Peter is saying, just like Enoch went down and preached to these spirits, Jesus went down and preached to these spirits who were trapped in prison, these disobedient angels that maybe Jude was talking about, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, and he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Supposedly, there's a place where these spirits are being held, and when Jesus died on the cross... Not only did he take the, uh, the, the believers from the Old Testament times, take them 
up to heaven with him, but before he did that, or some, somewhere in the proximity of the time that he did that, he went over to this little prison area and he spoke to these spirits and he told them the gospel. Not that they could get saved, but because his name and his glory could be vindicated. See, you disobeyed. And I am here to tell you that God, what God has said has come to pass and I'm the proof. I may be wrong completely about this. But what I think in the big picture, what this passage, this last bit of text that we're studying says is, you've got two options. You can suffer now and be with him forever in glory, or you can do what you want now and have glory now and suffer eternally when this life is over. I think in a big picture sense, that's what's being said here. I, I am open to your criticism. So option one is follow the way of sin which you, in which you will receive temporary glory and eternal suffering. Or option two is follow the way of Christ and you will receive, and, and in this life, because of sin, there will be temporary suffering as you seek to follow Christ. As, as following Christ becomes increasingly countercultural and we, we endure increasing amounts of suffering for it, you are to endure, you are to look to this passage to find the strength to remove the fear, to be able to do it and do it well so that you will experience eternal glory in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is above all of, at the right hand of God with all these, above all these other creatures. Let me leave you with this. This sermon this morning is called Fighting Fearfulness. And, uh, before I conclude, let me just say this. And I don't say things like this very often and I, because I don't aim to scare anybody. But it comes up in God's word and I wanna be faithful to the text. If you wanna talk about true fear, not fear of suffering a little bit on this earth, but true fear, let me tell you what true horror is. True horror is to die in your sin and, and to enter an existence that is nothing but suffering day after day forever. And within that suffering, you have enough consciousness of thought that you remember that you had the opportunity for all of your earthly life to receive the free gift that was paid for by another and to receive something that you do not in any way deserve. And that is to spend eternity with the one who consciously, volitionally, purposefully chose to love you and to love you so much to the point that he was ready to lay down and did lay down his life and then turned and offered to you the free gift of salvation based on his work. And then to know, to come to the realization that you made a conscious decision to say, no thanks. And to know that you must live with that decision that you made forever. And to know that the one who offered you the gift was right to put you in the place that you are now because the rejection of such a wonderful and eternal gift with him is worthy of the punishment of eternal suffering apart from him. That, my friends, is true fear, true horror. And I pray that nobody ever experiences that because you're all followers 
of Jesus Christ, all trusting him as your Lord. And if you're not sure about that, boy, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you, or another believer in this room would love to talk to you and, and help you understand how you can know for sure that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. The answer to our big question today is this. Suffering is a, is a reality, and it's natural to fear it. I want to say that again because I don't think a lot of pastors, especially in the prosperity gospel movement, say stuff like this. Suffering is a reality in this life, and it is natural to fear it. However, we as Christians have access to supernatural strength to confidently endure while pointing others to the source, that is Jesus Christ, of our strength. I'm out of time, but here's some just interesting things to think through this week, um, some thought exercises. Grab a pen and a paper and uh, maybe go through these, right? Exercise number one, what are you fearful of? Maybe a better way to ask that question is, why do you not bring Christ up more in the conversation with the people that you come into contact with? What are you fearful of? Number two, what are your priorities? Is your life out of order because Christ has not yet, you have not yet sanctified him or honored him in your heart as holy? And so he's not informing the decisions that you're making on a daily basis. That needs to change. Third, how would anyone know? I mean, do you find yourself having people regularly or at least once in a while asking you, why do you live so differently than the culture in which you exist? And then third, fourth and final, what in your life needs to change? I want to encourage you to wrestle through these things, to, to take some time and, and purposefully ask yourself these questions. I believe that it'll be a great exercise for you and you'll be blessed from doing it. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. We thank you for the time that we're going to get to spend together this afternoon at the picnic. Father, we, we ask that you would please uh, help us to take whatever fear of man, fear of circumstances, fear of suffering that exists in our lives and our heart, anything that's distracting us from the mission that you've placed us here to accomplish, and that we would recall the, the, um, the teaching is very vivid in this text that, Father, you overcome. In your, in, in your son, Jesus Christ, who in your sovereign plan, you allowed to be crucified and, and allowed him to endure suffering. He is now, Father, at your right hand in glory. And these angels that disobeyed are now in gloomy darkness forever. Father, help us to choose wisely which path we point our feet down to walk. In Jesus' name, amen.